on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And if it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday here on WHMP and Talk the Talk. And we have with us today the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedengardner. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate your time. I'd like to begin by... I'd like to begin by asking you about a story that has received uh, certainly statewide publicity, maybe national publicity <laughs> as well. It, it's an odd story to be sure, um, but it has a number of aspects. And this is the story of students from a high school in Westfield who were on a field trip, an environmental exploration field trip in Greenfield on Rawson Island, which is in the Connecticut, and they came upon bones, which they figured out because they found a skull, or the teacher found a skull, are human remains. This happened late last week. Yeah. Um, I, I know it's not exactly the mayor's office bailiwick to deal with human remains on an island in the middle of the Connecticut, but it is in your, it is in your bailiwick in the sense that it's part of Greenfield. Yeah. Um, Anything you can tell us about that situation? Well, um, just never let, you know, we have something for everyone here in Greenfield. <laughs> so, you know, if you're looking for human remains, you just never know when you're going to find them. Um, sorry, it was children. <laughs> and um, I, from my perspective, I was notified by the chief when they, uh, Chief Haig, when they found them. Um, and they do believe it is someone they have been looking for for about four years. Now, I have not found out yet from him whether they've determined whether it is that individual or not, but it's somebody, he, they believe it's somebody they were acquainted with. I mean, I know, I think that's all just speculation from the fact that this person sort of disappeared and there's been no trace of him um until these remains showed up and he was the type of person by which of which he could easily have been on the island in some capacity yeah. do you have any indication whether there's foul play involved or whether this is a natural I death I mean, yeah that's going to be a question as you might imagine for the da's office i do believe you know they automatically take those kinds of cases and look into them. So I, I believe the Greenfield Police Department is um, is checking on that. And uh, the only other thing I, I am aware of, but I haven't totally verified, is that some of that island also belongs to Montague, but I guess we got the lucky side. So. <laughs> is there any indication? I feel badly. We're talking about a human being. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Has I, died, I, and it isn't funny, but there were just, you know, Right, and, and and it's and it was potentially traumatic, I think, for the I'm sure. for the students, and apparently the teacher handled it very well. Yeah. Uh, that said, I guess I have one last question in the, in the world, and I may be asking you to speculate again. Has there been any information provided to you how long those remains have been on the island, on Rawson Island, in Greenfield? No, no hard information. When I spoke with the chief about it, he said they had been looking for this person for three to four years. So. But, you know, how long they were there is, again, for whoever does that kind of investigating, 
out of the VA's office. Okay, we I think we've probably exhausted what we can get from you on on this, but still, it's 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 a, a it's a story you kind of don't know quite what to make of. Um, well, in in one of my lifetimes, I'm also a mystery writer, so you can bet I've taken notes. <laughs> well, I I. I uh, I'm not sure this is quite the transition I was looking for, the segue, but 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 I'm sure there is at least one person in Greenfield who might want to uh, see you have the ample opportunity to return to uh, mystery writing and have plenty of time to it, um, because you have an opponent in this year's election for mayor, and and this race I'm sure is going to heat up a lot now that we are getting to Labor Day. And I'm wondering if you could share with us your perspective on the state of the election in Greenfield for the position which you hold now as mayor. Well, I am completely focused on my campaign. Uh, I'm not too overly concerned about uh, the competitors campaign. At the same time, I, d I take nothing for granted, you know, it, at all whatsoever. I have a good record. I have a great record to run on. Um, and we're focused on our campaign. It is, if for lack of a better word, early days, so to speak. I suspect um, uh, uh, Jenny, uh, the um, other candidate, is as happy as I am that we didn't have a primary and we're just going straight to the election. So we have time and are certainly, and have been geared up uh, planning the campaign for several months now but we we're really into full campaign mode right now so um i'm i'm looking forward in some ways to it <laughs> it's, i will say this what i'm learning which i guess i hadn't really thought about till it became real like a few months ago is it's it's very different running as a mayor while being a mayor and you know, I've talked to one or two of my mayor compadres in other parts of the state who've had to do that. Most of them were two year mayors, so they have to run every two years. So it's like, you know, it's just part of the deal for them. But having, you know, it come up here at three and a half, roughly three and a half years is sort of like, oh, right, I have to actually run a campaign again. So. Well, let me let me back up for one moment for those of our listeners who are not from Greenfield. <clears throat> There's no preliminary election in Greenfield because there are only two candidates. Mm -hmm. and, and in Greenfield, are the preliminary are there preliminary elections or are there primaries? In other words, are they by party the primary. or primary? So, so that if there were so how 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 does that work in Greenfield if there well, were that's a good question, uh, and I'm that's why I have a city clerk. <laughs> I should know this. I have a city clerk and a campaign chair. Um, the 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 terms preliminary and primary have been used interchangeably here, so there may be a technical difference. I really don't know, okay. um, but I just know that we don't have one. There's there are contested elections in one or two of the other candidates. Uh, Buzz, you've been planning the candidates night. You might have better input on that than I do. But, I think I um, do. And so let me yeah. point out, we, we have um, 
It, it's very. I'm very excited. I'm very flattered. I'm going to be moderating the debate um, between uh, Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner and uh, Councillor uh, Virginia DeSorger. That'll be held on October 3rd at 7 o'clock. It's going to be broadcast live at uh, Greenfield Community Television. Um, and then later in the month, I believe it's 24th, there will be a candidates' night that's going to be held at uh, Greenfield Community College in the Cone Dining Commons. There will be, uh, they haven't all responded yet, but if everyone who was invited accepts the invitation, there will be 13 candidates for school committee, uh, city council, and the two who are contesting for an assessor's position. They'll be up there, they'll make some opening statements, and they'll get questions. Questions are going to come through the recorder. Um, readers will be solicited, asked to propose questions, and the League of Women Voters will vet those questions, and those are the questions that are going to be asked of those on candidates' night. As far as the mayoral debate, we will have uh, three people on a panel, two of whom are professional journalism, uh, professional journalists, and one of whom will be a student, probably from Greenfield Community College, who is from Greenfield, familiar with the issues, and they'll be asking the questions of the two candidates. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, to being uh, having the best seat in the house as the moderator uh, on October 3rd. So let's turn to some of the issues that are present and are subject to debate in Greenfield. Um, major ones, I think, certainly the most new ones that have received the most publicity involve the police and the lawsuit we don't have time today to rehash all of that but i would like to know if there is any news with regard to the uh, lawsuit i suspect the, suspect the answer is not but i would like to know the answer to that um, and i would like to know how the coverage for the police in that midnight shift how that has worked out because I don't think we had a conclusion of that last time we spoke mayor so help us understand those two situations sure well as far as the uh, civil case uh, and where it's at it is in, in going through its legal paces uh, as an appeal and because of that because it's ongoing litigation I really can't talk too much about it um, I have not received a recent status on that yet. Uh, last I had heard, um, both sides were filing their briefs for the appeal. Okay. Uh, that's, that's at least back to the more or less the early July. So um, I'm sure some stuff has happened. I just, as you know, the city's attorney is not handling that. It's being handled by Maya, our um, intergovernmental, inter whatever it's called, insurance company. <laughs> and, and once the briefs are filed, we'll be able to see what the different positions are and, and make some judgments with regard to the possibilities of, or the probabilities with yeah. regard to the outcome. But I don't think the briefs are filed yet, but once they are, I'd really appreciate yeah. if we could know that and we can certainly keep track oh, of yeah. that. It, when you talk to me about this, I, it always reminds me to ask. So um, I will I will get an update on that um, for you. Um, the only other thing I can say, as far as the midnight shift goes, I'm fairly certain it's going just fine. Uh, we have hired additional police officers because of the grant that we got. 
Um, the ones that are that had to be trained, a couple of those of those officers came to us with fully trained. Uh, they had never worked in Greenfield, so they needed the sort of the Greenfield, what the police department calls their their interdepartmental uh, training as to how things work in Greenfield. Um, but then there, there were two that needed to go to the academy. So two, those two are actually not too far away from finishing up at the academy. And, and then they have to do a period of training with the city of Greenfield. So they will not be ready. I think it's into the until the late fall to actually take on a shift as um, a police officer and not a police officer in training. So is the Greenfield Police Department almost fully staffed at this point? That is correct, but only because of the grant. Okay, review for us if you would please. Oh, sorry about that. We got a Department of Justice grant, um, several hundred thousand dollars, about three hundred thousand dollars over four years, and that has allowed us to hire uh, three additional officers. The fourth additional officer was because of a couple of retirements, and we were able to replace that person, actually a couple of those people, um, with obviously with newer new people. So, um, I mean, the chief always would prefer to get people who were fully trained and just needed to go through the Gre city of Greenfield Police Department training, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. And he's always looking for diverse candidates, of which we have um, um, uh, another woman uh, on our team and um, some other people, some of whom are multilingual. So that's a good thing. We are speaking with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergardner, on this Mayor's Monday. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to continue this conversation. We've got some really interesting and exciting news about Greenfield, which we'll cover right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Comedy as a Weapon presents Comedy Cause 5, a comedy night fundraiser Saturday, September 9th at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Join comedians like Kim DeShields, Timothy Lovett, Janet McNamara, and HBO's Kevin Lee. Comedy Cause 5, the back-to-school edition at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Doors open at 7.30, tickets cost $25. All the proceeds will support the Care Center. Visit ComedyWeapon.com for more information. Sponsored by Sage Housing, Inc. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hips, shoulders, 
shoulder or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday, we continue our conversation with the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. During the break, Dan Torres, you had posed an interesting question, which we said to the Mayor, stop. I'd like to hear that on the air. So why don't you repose that question so and bring our listeners into this conversation. Thanks, Bill. So what I asked uh, the mayor is, so you mentioned that you're running for re-election. What, what's your, been your greatest accomplishment in the last four years? Well, I've had several. Um, if you go to my website, RoxanneForMayor.org, you'll find them. But anyway, um, and there's a donate button too, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. <laughs> Doing a Bernie thing here. Um, so um, I certainly getting the library up and running. Um, we had a great building committee that I appointed and that was a wonderful citizen led citizen involved happening. In addition to obviously all the professionals that work for the city and we have a wonderful library uh, that is just gangbusters right now. And then um, securing the property for the new fire station. Uh, again, a, a great building committee that I appointed and they are working very closely with the uh, contractors and so forth who are putting the library together and I'm, I'm sorry, in the fire station on the other end of Main Street. <laughs> so in a few more years, you're not gonna recognize Main Street Greenfield, but um, so that's one. Um, some brick has already gone up on the board on the on the building. We're really we're really ahead of schedule. We're not ahead of schedule. We're definitely on time. And only thing that's going to hold us up on the library are, um, you know, supply chain issues. By the way, the new library came in on time on budget and I'm, I'm sorry, on time and under budget by a couple of million dollars. So that's a great thing. Um, then we, um, the Wilson's project, we were very much involved in that and um, we're able to assist them in some of the financing for that. And that's going to be great. As I said, in a couple of years, you're not going to recognize Main Street. They will, I think the co-op will be making their plans to move in, you know, sometime in the late fall. I mean, I think they're going to start that process. Don't quote me. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a little fuzzy on all those details because I think they change a bit too. Uh, but and then they'll start working on the upper stories at Wilson. So those are three big things. And then the crown jewel in my mind is the skate park because we didn't have a skate park. And that was one of my initial campaign promises was to uh, get that skateboard park built. Again, I was able to use ARPA money that wonderful money that kind of fell out of the sky. And I was a lucky enough mayor to be mayor at the time. So I was able to use ARPA money to assist in that effort as well. And we have that, that opened in early May. And it, I mean, people from all over the valley come up to skateboard there of all ages. I'm amazed at how many 
30 and early 40 year olds still skateboard. <laughs> Mayor, one of the parts of the job uh, is to be involved with schools and schools, the school year is about to begin. Could you just spend a minute with us on the state of affairs, the schools in Greenfield, whether there are issues that need to be resolved, building issues of any sort, personnel issues, or what kind of shape your school system is in because other towns and yes. municipalities have had their issues. I have not gotten an update from the superintendent. It's only barely been a, maybe a week. I think last week was the end of the, the, end of the first week. Um, so maybe this is the first full week with the exception of the holiday that's coming up. Um, but that said, uh, as far as I know, there have been no major issues opening the school. I mean, I'm sure the superintendent would have a very different view of that because she knows she's on been on the ground. We have a building study. We have a, um, a, a uh, what we're calling a it's redistricting, which is a bit of a misnomer. But we will be the we the school committee will be determining based on a study that was done by uh, New Nesdek. Um, again, I'm not good with the translation of the uh, acronyms on that one. But they studied all of our school buildings and made recommendations for how we can more equitably distribute students throughout our district, but particularly in our elementary schools. So that will we will make that decision, I think, this year, and it won't necessarily affect this year, but it will uh, probably predict some changes for for, for next year. Me Mayor, this is Dan. Uh, can you just uh, talk about uh, educational funding in Greenfield recently? I'm sure this is going to be an issue that's brought up during the campaign is how much more money uh, is Greenfield spending today than it has over the recent years? And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, some facts <laughs> as opposed to some of the stuff that's been out there. If you take into consideration the money that the city provides as an operating budget, as the operating budget for the schools, which was the source of the concern because I had to, instead of give them the 10.3% they wanted, I had to only give them 3%. And um, which then was still $21 million. Um, if you count that, plus the city of Greenfield from its operating budget pays all of the teachers and administrators and other staffs uh, fringe benefits. You put those two pieces together, the schools are over 50% of the city's operating budget, which is quite different, well, by several percentage points than other communities. In some, it's about the same. And it's a, that's about average, right, for what schools spend uh, yeah. on budgets? Well, consistently, there's also, oh, don't get me started on school financing because I don't know as much as I should, but I know enough. <laughs> There's something called the uh, minimum aid, minimum school aid, which cities are required to do. And we have consistently for the last, I don't know, approximately 10 plus years, paid well over the minimum by about $5 million. So, um, and that's all, all this information can be found on the DESI uh, Department of Edu uh, Elementary and Secondary Education website. You know, you just look up Greenfield and it'll it'll tell you 
how we fund schools and have consistently done well by our schools. And so as I understand it, Mayor, you say, and you say this information is available, that out of Greenfield's budget, if you put in all the different component parts of the school funding, that it comprises that, that ex, those expenditures uh, come to or add up to 50% plus of the city of Greenfield's budget? Right, the whole budget, including the school department. Let me ask, we just have a little bit of time left. I want to circle back to this uh, issue of the library and the, and the old library. So you mentioned that the new library is going gangbusters, just yep. open. And so bring us up to date about the new library and tell us what's going to happen to the old library. Well, the old library, which we is really technically named um, now, especially going back to its old name, which was the Levitt Hovey House, it was owned by, you know, it goes back to, it was built during George Washington's era. So it's, it's the oldest building. It's very historical. It's on the National Historic Registry. It is a beautiful building situated right next door to the new building. And it was recently, we're in the process of, uh, you know, not all the signatures are on the paperwork yet, selling it to Greenfield Savings Bank, who will put about $3 million into it to renovate it exterior, interior first floor, and of course, some infrastructure inside the building, heating system and so forth. Put in a new handicap accessible elevator to, to accommodate the public, and they will be moving a couple of their significant departments over to the new building so their um, wealth management uh, and trust department that's one department um, and then their um, residential real estate services will go into that building on the first floor i think they have plans for the other floors too but not not at the moment well, we're going to have to leave the building projects going on in Greenfield there for the time being. Roxanne Wittengardner, Mayor of Greenfield, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining well, us you. on this Mayor's Monday. Yeah, my pleasure. Goodbye, we, all. Goodbye, we Mayor. Come back, we will be we will be speaking with the president of Hampshire College. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Another resignation on Friday in Amherst. Amherst School Committee member Peter Demling has resigned and has released his resignation letter to the public. Amherst Pelham Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Michael Morris announced on August 18th he was stepping down. Regional School Committee Chair Ben Harrington resigned on Monday. And then on Thursday, another staff member, Allison McDonald, announced her resignation. Demling says constant bullying, harassment, and intimidation of public figures is by far the biggest problem with Amherst civic life. A decision on a proposed 109-room hotel at the former site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette is still pending after the Northampton Planning Board continued the matter until the next meeting in September. This will give the DPW time to finish reviewing the project. The board did approve plans for a six-story affordable housing project at 27 Crafts Avenue. The $16.6 million project is being developed by the Valley CDC. The organization tells the Gazette the next steps are to work with engineering firms to come up with a plan for construction costs and for additional funding. A group of children and their teachers in a field environmental philosophy group discovered human remains Wednesday morning on Rawson Island in the Connecticut River. 
The students who attend BioCitizen, Inc. explore the local environment, and last week they were studying the local waterway when they found bones and shortly after a human skull. Greenfield police and the office of the chief medical examiner were on scene Wednesday. As of Friday, the remains had not yet been identified, and the Northwestern District Attorney's Office has said the investigation is open. For today, it'll be partly sunny, chance for a spot shower this afternoon, high 76 to 80. Tonight, mostly cloudy, overnight lows around 60. And the other for Tuesday, mostly cloudy, chance for afternoon showers, highs in the mid and upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. A recent piece by columnist Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times under the headline where gender studies are out, jocks are in, starts this way. This was in the middle of August, so the two weeks that she begins with are now upon us. In two weeks, the new school year will begin at Florida's new college, the Progressive Public Liberal Arts School, singled out by Governor Ron DeSantis for cultural transformation. Returning students will find an institution that is increasingly unrecognizable. Over a third of the faculty have left. Many of last year's students are continuing their education elsewhere. Hampshire College, a small private liberal arts school in New England has offered financial aid to new college students so they can transfer without tuition increases. 35 plan to attend Hampshire this fall and 30 more have inquired about doing so in the spring, a large number given that last year new college had fewer than 700 students. The article, the column goes on to say that the 
new college leadership has announced that they were moving to abolish the gender studies department and then the column and the information goes downhill from there. We have with us the president of Hampshire College, Ed Wingenbach. We thank you so much, Ed, for being with us today. What's the story at Hampshire with regard to these new college students? Are they coming? How's it working out? Uh, yes, they're coming uh, and it's working out really, really well, I think, both for the students who needed a needed a, a sanctuary from uh, an institution that was under attack, and we could talk a little bit more about what's going on there. Uh, but it's also working out well for us. I mean, the New College of Florida is the honors college of the state of Florida system. It's one of the you know crown jewels of public education in the United States. It's one of the best small public liberal arts colleges in the country. Um, and Governor DeSantis and his cronies have decided to destroy this amazing institution, right? That has produced more Fulbright scholars alone than the rest of the entire University of Florida system, right? This is an amazing place. He's destroying it intentionally to try to turn it into an analog of a, you know, a, a right-wing Christian college. He's explicitly said he wants to make it like Hillsdale College, which is a place that doesn't accept federal financial aid because they don't want to follow anti-discrimination law. Uh, and so we have these incredible students. These are some of the best students in the country who have no place to go. Uh, if they want to pursue the education they were promised at New College. Um, and so, yes, there's a lot of them coming here. Uh, we've had approximately 90 New College students out of the 500 or so who would have been returning this year uh, have have begun the transfer process. We have uh, 37 of those students who will be here this week. Uh, we start moving this week, so 37 of those students will be here this week. Uh, there's another 30 uh, who are uh, in process to come in the spring, um, who are you know you know trying to arrange their transfer and needed a little bit more time, uh, and because of the new college, new administration, you know the their new fascist administration keeps doing really objectionable things. Uh, we've reopened this possibility for students who were continuing at New College uh, because we had a lot of people calling us uh, in you know mid to late August saying you know okay I. I I'm now realizing just how bad this is. Can we come to Hampshire? And you know, we had we had said we could do this through August 1st because we wanted to know who was going to be here this fall. We've now extended this offer uh, for spring transfer students, so they can they can, they we expect to see uh, significantly more. So all the way around, it's good for us, good for those students, um, and ultimately, it's it's really the right thing to do. We can talk more about that. How did the students at New College in Florida know about Hampshire? Uh, well, there, there's two ways. One, New College uh, is part of a consortium of colleges that, that are engaged in progressive education, the consortium, consortium for Innovation, Innovative Environments and Learning. So it's places like Hampshire College, New College of Florida used to be, uh, Bennington, uh, Evergreen State, um, you know, sort of the, the uh, Antioch, right, where you went, Bill, right, places that are committed to progressive student-centered education. And so New College does, like, like Hampshire College, students design their own course of study. They get narrative evaluations instead of grades. Uh, they do a very significant senior project as a condition of graduation. So there are, they're kind of a, a sibling school to Hampshire, and so there's a lot of cross-pollination there. Um, so if people who are looking at 
New College probably knew about Hampshire in kind of in the in the air. Uh, more importantly, though, when this started happening, when this assault began, uh, we tried to work with New College to to provide this opportunity. The administration at the time wasn't interested in talking to us even before they were uh, removed by the governor. I think they thought somehow that this wasn't going to happen. Uh, so I started talking to the student organizers, the Save New College organization, uh, who were demonstrating and trying to, you know, resist this activity. Uh, and I asked them, like, if we were able to offer you a place to go, if you're not successful, where you, we would match your tuition so that you wouldn't have to bear the brunt of this right wing attack on you and you could continue your education in the kind of model that you came to new college for, would that be helpful for you? I don't want to undermine your your politics and your resistance. Um, and they were enthusiastic about it. Thought it would be great to have kind of a safety net. So they the students knew they started spreading the word and then we did some, you know, some limited marketing in the in the area, in the geographic area around uh, new college just to make sure students knew that this was available and then it got a lot of coverage in the press particularly the south florida press um so the newspapers in sarasota tampa bay and that kind of you know uh west west florida coastal area there was a lot of coverage of what hampshire was doing and so students found out very quickly any let me oh, I'm follow sorry, up if i might I'm sorry, Bill. I uh, didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just wondering. There's always a question when there's transfer about transferring credits of courses already taken. Is that an issue in this transfer? It is not. Uh, and again, two reasons. One, uh, Hampshire, because our model allows students to design their own curriculum, right, and count their courses in the ways that they think matter. No transfer student to Hampshire ever loses credits, right? We accept all the, all the credits that people bring because you could do that at Hampshire. Uh, and then you don't lose credits because, you know, well, your introduction to political science course doesn't count towards the political science major here and you have to redo it. Well, we don't have majors like that. You define what you do. So nobody loses credits when they transfer to Hampshire. Uh, in the case of the new college students, because they were already in a self-designed program, uh, they're able to pick up wherever they were at New College, they can pick up here. I'm wondering, Ed Wingback, if you'd spend a minute reflecting on us on more of what is happening at New College and how it reflects what is happening across the country. It, it occurred to me when I was reading this Michelle Goldberg column, I said, what is Ed Wingenback going to do if Ron DeSantis should become president? That would be, how to put it, awkward. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about what is happening in higher education. And let me just add one other thing to this question. I know it's long and a little bit complex, but we were talking to Max Page, president of the Mass Teachers Association last week about what was happening at West Virginia University and the destruction of the liberal arts there. So give us your reflections on this, please. Yeah, uh, well, I'm gonna hope that Ron DeSantis doesn't become president. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> the scarier idea is someone with Ron DeSantis's um, fascist leanings who actually has a little bit of charisma um, and uh, that's be somebody I think I'd be more frightened of uh, but you know people like Ron DeSantis can do a whole lot of damage locally uh, and so you know two things about this what what they're doing in Florida uh, is really just the 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 most radical example of attacks on liberate the liberatory goal of education uh, that's happening not just in Florida, but in Texas and Tennessee and Oklahoma and, you know, lots of states that have 
conservative uh, control of governance. And it's of a piece of attacks on uh, telling the truth about our racial history and on uh, making, making it impossible for queer people and gay people and trans people to live their lives publicly uh, and get the medical care they need. Right? This is all part of the same thread and the same texture. Uh, and so what we're seeing it, at New College, because they were they're kind of a small and vulnerable institution and, and the governor was able to take over the board of trustees uh, and appoint a majority in there, push through this, this, this agenda. It's just the most radical example of this aggressive effort to suppress meaningful examination of what's happens in our society and the advancement of democratic ideals, the aspirations that education is about, right? How do we have an informed citizenry that understands what it means to be free, right? And what it and, and what we've done as a society and what we need to do better. And to not, you know, examine or even be willing to acknowledge the history and concurrent reproduction of oppression uh, is a key part of that agenda, not just in education, uh, but in right-wing politics broadly. You mentioned the word fascist, and I hesitated for a long time when Trump was president to use that word. I, I don't hesitate anymore, any longer, because it is an accurate description of the political institution that the political ideology that Trump was in fact espousing and trying to impose and that DeSantis in fact mimics as well. What I would like to know from you is how you see higher education in this country fighting back against that. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, this is a, this is a real problem uh, because, you know, what we're doing, for example, with New College um, was a way where we saw, here's a place where this fascist authoritarian agenda is advancing and we can, given our resources and our position and our platform, here's something we can do to push back against that and to try to highlight that and try to let people see what's happening uh, and also to provide a sanctuary to the people who are being victimized by it. Uh, and one of my concerns about higher education broadly is that it's it's there's a small c conservatism uh, that higher education leaders tend to adopt where they don't want to offend anybody right where they kind of where they're worried about you know will will someone on our board be upset will we get bad publicity if we speak out about what are fundamentally existential threats to the core mission of higher education. And I'm increasingly concerned and, dis and disappointed that we're not seeing widespread vocal resistance to this, these authoritarian measures, right? And I think about like, you know, you go back 30 or 30 years to think about people like, you know, or 40 years, I guess, to people like Ted Hesburgh at Notre Dame, who was, you know, helping to lead the civil rights movement from his from his position as the president of a university, uh, we're not seeing that, and we need to. And, I, and my fear is that there's a kind of sense of like, well, this will this will pass, or they'll they won't quite do all the things they say they're going to do. Well, 
if you watch what they're happening in Florida, they're doing, they're telling us what they're going to do, and then they're doing it, right? So they pass the, the don't say gay bill and say, well, this is only about protecting, you know, kindergarten through third through third grade from having discussed things that aren't appropriate, which is by itself already nonsense, right? Um, but it's just it's just for kids, and then the next year it's well, it's K through twelve, right? And now you know, then 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 it's well, we can't do the AP psychology. Uh, elected for seniors because psychology talks about gender identity. So we can't do that. And now it's now it's now it's higher ed, right? Let's get rid of the D. So they don't stop, right? They tell you what they do and they do it. And if you don't stand up to it, you don't push back, then it's not going to slow down. And I, I just I really I'm I hope that higher education leaders in particular will be willing to risk uh, some of their short-term pain uh, to stand up and say publicly why this is wrong and find things to do to to resist it. I mean, again, I'll say this again. There are 42 colleges in Florida in the state, in the state system. Not a single one of those presidents has said a word about what's happening at New College. They probably like their job. Well, yeah, that's one of the ways that authoritarians uh, achieve their ends, right? People like their their the the comforts that they've earned, and they don't want to don't want to risk them until it's too late. We're speaking with Ed Wingenbach. He is the president of Hampshire College. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to find out the status of Hampshire. All that right after these messages. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that, which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it wasn't something else. It was alcohol. AA helped me find a new life. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit Western Mass AA. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Ed Wingenbach, who is the president of Hampshire College. I want to return to this conversation of what higher education isn't doing to combat this right-wing threat. But before we do that, to make sure we get this into the show today, Ed Wingenbach, Hampshire College faced, I know you don't love this expression, but a, near de- a near-death experience some years ago. I'd like to know the status of Hampshire College today, number of students, its financial situation, faculty, and so on. For those who don't follow this day-to-day in the minutia of Hampshire College, bring us up to date. Absolutely. So we've got great news on all those fronts. Um, so this 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 week we'll have uh, approximately 337 new entering and transfer students. Uh, that's a, a that'll be our largest class since roughly 2018. So before the events that led to the uh, the crisis that you described, um, and our admission our application levels have returned to what they were at our above actually that that era. Um, that will bring our total enrollment up over 700 students. Um, so it's a big jump this year, and then we'll continue to, to next year to to grow again. So our enrollments are path are on dramatic are dramatic ascent. Um, different way of thinking about that: this entering class is 25% larger than last year's entering class, right? That's the kind of enrollment growth that that you're not seeing in most places, right? And part of that is because Hampshire uh, has has and continues to offer an approach to education that is really unique and distinctive. But I have to believe part of it is that Hampshire is the kind of place that stands up for the progressive values that that we and our students believe in. Um, financially, we're we're in solid we're in a solid position. We've uh, we're over 40 million in our campaign to support the college as we regrow our enrollment, um, all in direct support. Uh, that's really been an amazing outpouring. Um, and we just hired, and they're, they're, uh, they're starting this week also, 10 brand new faculty um, joining Hampshire, all of whom are coming to Hampshire because they recognize this is a place where we're trying to invent new ways to think about an undergraduate education, right? That really center, centers the, the urgent challenges that our students care about and brings the liberal arts to bear on those, right? That that's the way we're going to make progress towards a more, you know, just and equitable society by bringing the the the, the competencies of the liberal arts to these complex questions, uh, rather than just trying to, you know, reproduce uh, old pathways in, in academics. You mentioned the forty million dollars towards the fifty million dollar goal, which was to be used to reinvent, reinvigorate, reestablish the college. But that is money that's being spent. It's not money that's going towards an endowment. So will Hampshire continue to have this issue of being tuition dependent in terms of its finances? Uh, yeah, although I don't, call it, I don't think that's an issue, right? Um, you know, again, as you know, somebody who went to a small college, the vast majority of colleges in the country are tuition dependent, right? There's a tiny handful of colleges that are that are, that don't depend on tuition to support themselves. The key is figuring out how to do your core mission with the resources that you have available to you, combining tuition, support from donors, and you know whatever size endowment you have. And the important thing for Hampshire is that we clearly have that model in place, right? And we know exactly how to 
work within our means while providing uh, an exciting experimental innovative edu education. And is your goal in some ways to influence higher education? Is Hampshire's mission in some ways to influence higher education to see these values and the value of this sort of education? Is that part of the is part of the gift you hope to give? That is the fundamental mission of Hampshire College. It's in our mission statement, which concludes with to transform higher education. That's what we were founded for 50 years ago by the other colleges in the valley. It was like essentially to be kind of a skunk works for higher education, try to invent the future, try to do it in the most you know radical and interesting way possible so that other places could learn bits and pieces and you know you, everyone in higher education would benefit. So part of that is, is curricular innovation and experimentation, but also part of that is being willing to say and speak the truth about when things happen in the, in the world. We were there. We have been speaking with Ed Wingenbach, who is the president of Hampshire College. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Ed. Thank you so very much for your time, your insight, and your leadership. Always great to be here, Bill. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, I am really excited about our guests that are here in the studio with us. We have two incredible organizations represented uh, here. We have the assistant Farm Director Sydney Truer of the Redgate uh, Farm, the Education Farm in Buckland. It's an extraordinary uh, enterprise, and we're going to hear all about it in just a minute. We also have from CESA, uh, the Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, the extraordinary Local Heroes um, organization. We have the uh, Communications Coordinator, Jacob Nelson, with us. Hello, Jacob. Let me start with you. Hey, you Buzz. How's it going this morning? I'm, it's going great. Last time I saw your director, uh, Phil Corman, was last Monday when we were all gathered in Deerfield to uh, support our farms that suffered so greatly during the rains that we've had uh, so far this year. Um, and a million di dignitaries from the lieutenant governor right. to all our local delegation and bank presidents, all there to support our farms. Phil spoke really eloquently. So uh, let me ask you as a communications uh, coordinator, what, what is your job and why the focus on our farms? 
Yeah. Well, Buzz, so CISA's, CISA's mission on the whole is to help grow a resilient local food economy and local food community. Um, and so that's what puts us right at the center of helping helping those dignitaries and helping our farms find ways to recover after the flood like that. Um, but I, I'd like to think of CISA metaphorically as this huge bridge. Um, and a lot of my coworkers are helping small farms and businesses directly with um, staying viable with business planning and marketing. There's also the Local Hero um, branding program that helps folks recognize on store shelves what has been grown locally. Um, and, you know, others are even involved in food access work and helping helping everyone be able to access the bounty that our local farms are growing. But how, how I came to be involved um, with Sydney and Redgate Farm is that uh, kind of this, this third arm of, of CISA within communications is helping local farms and food businesses um, bridge to, to people, um, to people that might buy their food, to people that might enjoy coming and visiting and, um, and learning from them. So in, you know, communications, uh, one of the things that I do is write a weekly uh, news column that shows up in the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder often. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of, of visiting Sydney um, and getting to see firsthand what's going on at Redgate Farm up there in Buckland. Um, which is a, a cacophony of joyful chaos, I would say. Whoa, a cacophony <laughs> of joyful chaos. That's why he's a communications coordinator. Right? That was a great one. <laughs> really a great one. Sydney, so tell us, it's an extraordinary thing. For people who don't know about Redgate Farm, it, it's kind of, it is indeed a farm and it is indeed an educational center. It's amazing how kids immerse themselves in farming and learn so much about themselves and each other, and it, uh, and in addition to being sort of school and a um, and a farm, it's also a camp where kids <laughs> can go and just have a great time. So, you, Sydney Truer, how long have you been at Redgate? I have been there for about five years altogether. I uh, think your backstory is you graduated from Smith, and right? I graduated from Yale, and then did from an AmeriCorps Yale. program out here. Oh, out excuse me. Yeah, that's right. If we could. Uh, yeah, it's oh Yale. boy. <laughs> <laughs> and your farm director, Ben Murray, also graduated from Yale, I think. That's right. It's and you ended up getting your hands dirty. But it has nothing to do with. <laughs> 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 right, we graduated from Yale and went immediately into uh, farming. The dirt. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, you are known throughout our the hill towns about your gardening prowess your ability as a gardener and mm -hmm. and what you grow and that's that was your primary focus but you are now as assistant director tell us about redgate tell us about why you're there yeah redgate is a pretty incredible place the idea is that we have these values that are really important to us like hard work and having fun and helping kids grow in confidence trying new things and farming is this incredible way to approach those things with kids because all of those things are so important in farms and farming. And so when we're working with the kids on the farm to do things like grow the tomatoes that they're going to be eating later on in the day in their dinner or take care of the sheep and the lambs who have just been born, all of those things just they require these critical components like teamwork and um, giving it your all. And that's what farming brings out in these kids. I really think farming helps grow really good humans. And that's a wonderful Ooh, thing to have. I like that one. So well, I, I want to just, what I love about the whole notion of that which is Redgate is 
if kids go to a camp, and we'll talk about who goes to Redgate, what kids camp or what kids are campers there, but uh, we'll think of activities. Now we're going to make bracelets, or now we're going to do this. But this is a working farm. The, the the kids that attend Redgate do what has to be done today because that fence needs to be fixed, or that lamb is is being born, right? That's right. The idea is that there are no, we say this often to our teachers and our students, there's no made-up tasks. We're not whitewashing a sign so that the next day another group can come in and paint it anew. What we're doing with the kids is exactly what we have to be doing in order to keep our animals healthy, in order to keep our garden vibrant, in order to manage our forest well. And the to-do list that we have for ourselves as staff is the same to-do list that we have for our students. So we're bringing them right along on that ride with us. Jacob Nelson, you wrote a really uh, wonderful piece, which I read back on July 29th in the, uh, in the Gazette. Uh, and you talked about an experience that the kids had with a lamb being born. Uh, can you tell us what motivated you to put that in your article and what did you experience there? Well, unfortunately, I wasn't there to see oh, the lamb actually okay. being born um, in July. That happened back in um, in March, right? End of March? Yeah, late March. Um, oh, of course, spring just, lambs. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just thought that was... And, and Sydney also shared a picture that, unfortunately, I can't share with the listeners because we're on radio right now. <laughs> um, but there's this picture that Sydney took um, from... Uh, I don't know, like from deeper in um, the lambing stall where the lamb was being born back at this group of students that was watching um, watching this lamb being born. And, and the story of right before that picture is that all these students are just running around campus on a scavenger hunt trying to find all sorts of things and orient themselves to the farm. And all of a sudden this lamb is being Doing born. what kids do, having yeah. fun, running around, right. being crazy. A cacophony of chaos, right? There you and go. then all of a sudden this <laughs> lamb is being born and Sydney just talked about how the the calm and the reverence and the respect and the understanding of what a big moment it was came over them, and that that Watching picture a birth really really captured that. Um, and and so, yeah, I just thought that was so compelling. And the other cool thing about that story is having students at Redgate in March is a new thing this year, um, because Redgate has has proven its worth to the community um, and is is most of the way through a fundraising campaign right now that's allowed them to build new buildings and and. Um, with heat and insulation and important things for having students on the farm outside of the warm months. So this was the first spring that students could be there and, and be in that position to witness something like the birth of a lamb. And that's pretty cool as well. So Sydney Troyer, tell, tell us about the programs that are offered. Tell us about where do the kids come from? How long do they stay? Tell us about the, that aspect of Redgate Farm. Sure. So our kids come from in large part all over New England. Uh, about half of our kids who are coming for school programs during the regular school year are coming from Springfield. And those programs, that's a long-standing relationship we've had with Springfield Public Schools. Uh, we're providing almost entirely a scholarship for those kids to come out. And that's what a lot of donations that go to the farm are funding, to make sure that those kids can have, have the transportation, can make it to the farm, have a place to stay, have the food to eat, all of that donations fund those programs. These are inner really city important. schools That's right. who have probably never stepped foot in a farm in their life, probably never touched an animal that wasn't a pet in their life. That's right, yeah. Come um, often from uh, poorer communities, right? Yeah, 
often from poorer communities, a question we get a lot right when the kids step off the bus is whether or not they're allowed to st- stand or walk on the grass. So it's, you know, it's, it's a big difference. It's a huge new world for them. And that story, the, the lamb being born, those are the Springfield students, right? Like they're running around a farm for the first time, going crazy, having fun. And then it all comes together and they're in a barn where a lamb is being born. I mean, it was an incredible experience. Um, but yeah, so we have the school programs the school year. And then in the summer, we have a brief session of, of day camp for these, for younger kids. And then we do an overnight program. Um, we also have kids who come from Boston in New York. We have one student who comes as far as from Italy, which is out there. Wow. Um, and wow. they really quickly form a really tight community at the farm. It's and a I lot of fun. Uh, uh, one of your counselors who also went to get Redgate as a, as a kid, I think that he, he is coming from Germany where he was in college, and he's coming to Redgate to work. <laughs> That's right. Germany by way of Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, these kids, they don't just do farming they also they do gardening they do forestry tell us what what these kids do yeah so the kids uh are start their day with chores just like you would at any regular farm we're making sure the animals have food and water uh every day they're joining us for the morning uh, in either garden work animal work or forest work and that can look like whatever's going on in the season so that might be putting Uh, tomato seeds in pots in the early spring it might be harvesting potatoes which is by the way the most fun thing to do with a fourth grader uh why is that (laughs) it's sort of like you're just in there up to your shoulders in the dirt uh kind of you know in cartoons when there's a character who's tossing the dirt between their legs behind (laughs) them just digging wildly for a bone or something that's that's what it is (laughs) it's a treasure hunt it's a treasure hunt. <laughs> right. And that's what you majored in in Yale. Uh, exactly. Treasure hunt. <laughs> oh. And these, so these kids, uh, they, they come for what period of time? Our school programs are typically three days, sometimes five. And then in the summer, we have longer programs, usually five days up to two weeks. Uh, we had one student uh, who, who came for five weeks of the summer, just tagged week after week after week, uh, which was amazing. And it's great to have those longer lengths of time with them because you really get to know them well. So, Jacob, you mentioned in your article these new buildings that are, are there. They're pretty beautiful. They, yeah, they're pretty nice. Tell us about them, what you what you observed. Um, I don't know. What is what is there to say? I, well, well one, one of them is there's a dormitory, right? Yep, yep. So there's, there's dormitory spaces. Um, there's, you know, a big... These beautiful post and beam structures, this honey-colored wood, um, and so big open-air cafeteria that also serves as a, a classroom space. Um, and attached to that, um, a very high-functioning commercial kitchen, which is also part of the programming at Redgate Farm, right? You're following, you know, in one day, you're not going to see a seed grow into something that becomes your dinner, but you're getting to experience all different segments of that. Um, and then... Uh, and then getting to cook that and serve that to um, to your classmates, to your friends that are along with you. And one of the interesting things, Sydney, that, that you told me um, that you often see at the farm is that it doesn't take a lot of convincing to get students to do some things that uh, they probably wouldn't do for their parents, whether that's like mucking out a dirty sheep stall or eating a vegetable they've never tried before. There's there's some motivation there that that you don't really have to like add much. Um, Explain that, Sydney. W- w- why is it that a kid who normally would, you know, wrinkle his nose at the thought of mucking <laughs> out a, 
uh, stall here dives into it. Why, how does that happen? Why does it happen? I think it's a little bit of the magic of farming. It's because when you look at an animal, whether you're a four-year-old or an 80-year-old, you know that that animal needs some things to survive, and it feels really good to be able to provide those things to that animal. Similarly, if you're getting ready to go to the kitchen and help make the dinner for all of your classmates and your teachers <clears throat> and these new staff members that you've just met, it's a big deal. You can feel the importance because it's real work. It's really what we have to do. And I think kids can dial into that pretty quickly and easily. I think it's, it's, as, it's as obvious to them as it is to us. So a day starts, the kids wake up, and they do whatever they're going to do, shower or whatever, and get dressed, and then they go and they do their chores that need to be done, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they do it together? They do it together. We split into, uh, into some small groups. That's a big part of how things work well at the farm is we're always shooting for these really small ratios so that we have one of our really talented, incredible staff members with maybe just four kids, so that all those kids can get their hands on the tools and all those kids can be really directly involved. And then they, when does breakfast happen? Ooh, uh, breakfast happens right after chores. That's right. We feed the animals first. <laughs> <laughs> and do they eat together, the kids? Yes. Yeah, so we have one big mess hall. We're all in there piled in together. We uh, sing a song, which I will not sing for you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess thank you is in order. <laughs> right. And so we sing a song just as a way to appreciate this meal that we're about to sit down together for. Uh, and then we have big family-style meals. So we're all sharing the food at the tables together. Uh, we are, before we take this break, I, just, I have one question for you. Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself an educator, a farmer? Uh, in what order, to what extent? I think... Uh, both of those pieces are at the core of what we do, but I think that we are Redgate Farm Education Center. So we are doing farming for the purpose of providing the best possible education. And so that education is really at the core of what we do. Wow, Jacob, she did go to Yale. Whoa. That was a great answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Assistant Farm Director, uh, Sydney Troyer, and with uh, Communications Coordinator for CESA, the community involved sustaining agriculture, Jacob Nelson, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. 
Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are here talking about a wonderful organization in our backyard, Truly Local Heroes. We're talking with Jacob Nelson, who is the communication coordinator for CESA, the community involved in sustaining agriculture, and uh, with Sidney Troyer of the Redgate Farm Education Center. And Bill, you had a question for Sydney. I do. I have one about the kids and one about you. Let's start with you, Sydney, if we might. You went to Yale, which conjures images of doctors and lawyers and investment bankers, and there you are with kids on a farm. Tell us how that came to be. Mm. I went to Yale. I grew up in Alaska, and uh, I was really interested in climate change and protecting environments and finding ways to help people love the outdoors. And when I was at Yale, that's sort of what I studied. I actually focused on, on Russia, but Massachusetts, very similar. Oh. Um, and <laughs> the environmental science was what I studied there. And the goal was always to be a sort of communicator or educator to figure out ways that I could contribute to the world by helping make people care about the outdoors. And I've worked as a kayak guide in Alaska, and I've worked in all kinds of crazy outdoor settings, but nothing, uh, the dunes of Cape Cod, uh, nothing has been as successful for me as the as farming at Redgate in terms of helping kids understand how great the outdoors is because it's so directly involved, because their hands are literally getting dirty, because they're touching tools and animals, and because they're so deeply connected with everything that's going on. They're not just looking at it, they're becoming a part of it. and that has been a pretty successful thing. I Bill, think. by way of disclosure, this yeah, is, I just wanted to uh, tell you, my spouse, uh, Marcine, has been a, she's got a green thumb. She's been a gardener for 60 years. We have seven gardens at home, and when she has was having problems, it was Sydney that she asked to come over, and she consulted oh. with about um, what she should do about whatever those problems were. But um, <laughs> uh, she is an, uh, you're a gardener extraordinaire. Oh, thank you. I love, I love being out in the garden. And let me interject before too much time goes by. My apologies to all persons who know that my stereotyping of Yale was not accurate, but it is a stereotype. Uh, I'd like to go back to the educational program itself and have you clarify, and my fault, perhaps I didn't quite get it. Uh, How old are the kids? What's their range to come to the educational program? You told us some were there for a week. Um, where did, 
and how do they get there? You told us many were from Springfield, but what organizationally happens to get the kids to the farm for this extraordinary experience? Sure. So uh, typically what we're doing is we're partnering with specific schools, or in the case of Springfield, sort of the public school district a little bit more at large. And fourth grade classes, typically, sometimes fifth, are coming out as a class, you know, rolling up in big yellow school buses to Little Buckland. Uh, and the coordination there is a lot to, in order to make sure that these kids get out there. There's a lot that goes be on behind the scenes. And we have some really great staff who focus specifically on trying to make sure that, you know, parents know that the kids need to bring boots, you know, <laughs> on a very basic level. Uh, and... Well, the, the parents also have to be convinced that it's going to be a safe environment for their kids and that they're, you know, all the things that every parent reasonably yeah. thinks about. They have to get these assurances, which Redgate gives them. And I think you were pretty packed this year. I've read that Redgate, you, your calendar was completely filled, right? Yeah, which was a, it's a phenomenal thing considering that our season is now twice as big as it used to be. You know, typically we would, we couldn't start until our little unheated cabins could house kids. Uh, usually, you know, late May or June is when we could do that. This year we started in March and we hit the ground running. Uh, and we had these schools uh, from Boston and New York and Springfield all arriving by bus. Sometimes, you know, one bus leaves and 30 minutes later, the next bus is pulling in. And we've got a new group of 30 kids who are going to be working with for the next three days. And Bill, at the farm, what originally was the kids were housed in little tents. And then the kids were ha housed in these little temporary cabins. And now there's this just beautiful dormitory that's, that's uh, you know, climate controlled and it's green. In, in the yeah this is the a lot of work went into making this building really well insulated <laughs> uh, and that was important to us because one thing we were struggling with was after the pandemic the demand was huge uh, for programs like ours you know outdoor programs that would get kids out of the house and off screens uh, but what we couldn't do is we couldn't compromise our program by pushing our numbers up 60 kids on our farm just wouldn't work. We wouldn't be able to give them the same experience. So like farmers everywhere are doing, we tried to extend our season instead. Uh, and by building this dorm on our property and having a place that kids can stay year round, we now have a really comfortable place so that when the kids are part of their chores is now shoveling two feet of snow, they've got somewhere warm and dry to go into. Uh, and so we're serving twice as many students, but without compromising the way we do it. Jacob Nelson, the, the farming community, which you alluded to earlier, which you, is your mission at CISA mm -hmm. to promote. You see an awful lot of local heroes. What brought your attention to Redgate? I just think, you know, every, every local hero that's sort of within the CISA umbrella um, is, has a, a different perspective, right, and a different piece of the puzzle of what we need to do um, moving forward to grow this local food community and this movement to, to build a better food-related world for all of us. Um, and I just, I'm so inspired by all the different examples of solutions and new ideas um, and old ideas that just don't, don't have the um, exposure or the participation as, as much as they should. And, and I just feel like Redgate Farm definitely falls into that latter category. Um, you know, I have such fond memories of my own childhood growing up in a garden um, and, you know, very clear memories of, of you know, my three-day winter experience at, um, 
an educational farm, an educational dairy farm out in the Hudson River Valley. Um, and that just, that stuck with me and actually has been playing in my mind quite a bit as I've in this conversation and in other interactions with Redgate Farm. And, and so I feel like it's just such an emotional touchstone for a lot of people that they, they can draw on as they make decisions throughout the rest of their lives. Um, and, and what a great way to get involved in the local food community. And my, my final question, Sidney Troyer, comes from Jacob's uh, article where he, he quotes you as saying, teachers often tell us how they see a student one way in their classroom, maybe as a rambunctious troublemaker, but on the farm, those same kids are, become hardworking and motivated and kind to their friends. That lets them see and connect with that student in a new light. That's a pretty powerful observation on your part. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the biggest pieces of our school programs is the kids who often have the hardest time in a classroom setting find the most success on the farm where they have the room to run around, they have the freedom and the kindness and the love from the, their classmates and teachers and staff and and we're able to help them be themselves a little bit more and invite them to do work that's very different than the worksheet that they've been you know banging their head against for a couple weeks Uh, I remember having a kid with me counting beans literally counting beans for our seed storage and uh, a teacher had come along with our group because she thought that he was going to be misbehaving in this group and he was I mean, no one counts beans better than that kid. Like <laughs> The intensity he brought to that activity and the pride that he had doing that work, that teacher, I mean, they ended that, they started that work session a little bit at odds. They ended that period just laughing, just so happy to be there with each other. And I really think it makes a difference when that goes back to the classroom with them. Well, Bill, I guess they're growing more than vegetables out in Buckland at the Red Gate Education. Growing good humans. <laughs> yeah, they're growing children. They're growing people. Thank you so much for what you do, Sydney Troyer. Thank you, Jacob Nelson, for covering it. And CISA is just the resource that we all just, it keeps on giving. Everybody else, we're going to be back with Megan Zinn. It is time for the writer's block, and she has a really special author coming right up. Stay with us. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Another resignation on Friday in Amherst. Amherst School Committee member Peter Demling has resigned and has released his resignation letter to the public. Amherst Pelham Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Michael Morris announced on August 18th he was stepping down. Regional School Committee Chair Ben Harrington resigned on Monday. And then on Thursday, another staff member, Allison McDonald, announced her resignation. Demling says constant bullying, harassment, and intimidation of public figures is by far the biggest problem with Amherst civic life. A decision on a proposed 109-room hotel at the former site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette is still pending. After the Northampton Planning Board continued the matter until the next meeting in September. This will give the DPW time to finish reviewing the project. The board did approve plans for a six-story affordable housing project at 27 Crafts Avenue. The $16.6 million project is being developed by the Valley CDC. The organization tells the Gazette the next steps are to work with engineering firms to come up with a plan for construction costs and for additional funding. 
A group of children and their teachers in a field environmental philosophy group discovered human remains Wednesday morning on Rawson Island in the Connecticut River. The students who attend BioCitizen Inc. explore the local environment, and last week they were studying the local waterway when they found bones and shortly after a human skull. Greenfield police and the office of the chief medical examiner were on scene Wednesday. As of Friday, the remains had not yet been identified, and the Northwestern District Attorney's Office has said the investigation is open. For today, it'll be partly sunny. Chance for a spot shower this afternoon, high 76 to 80. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Overnight lows around 60. And the other for Tuesday, mostly cloudy. Chance for afternoon showers. Highs in the mid and upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hip, shoulder, or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. Welcome to the show. We, uh, this is Monday, and it is uh, uh, always a pleasure to hear who Megan Zinn is going to introduce us to. There's an author who has an upcoming uh, event at the Odyssey, and... Who is that, and what was it all about? Well, it's always a pleasure for me to learn about a new writer, um, and that's that's my guest, um, Jay Vanessa Lyon, um, whose novel Lush Lives came out on August 1st of this year. Um, And uh, Vanessa is the author also of The Groves and Meet Me in Madrid under the pseudonym Verity Lowell, and she is an art historian, former appraiser, and occasionally curator who teaches at teaches visual studies at Bennington College in Vermont. And uh, t- Vanessa will be at Odyssey Books, as we said, to talk about Lush Lives on Tuesday, September 12th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more on their website, odysseybks.com. Welcome, Vanessa. 
Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us um, a bit about um, Lush Lives. What's the story? What is the story of Lush Lives? Um, I think it's been interesting because uh, the recent reviews, which have been positive, I'm happy to say, but have mostly sort of thought about it as a as a workplace romance. And it is a, a workplace romance in some sense. I mean, it, it is about decisions, in my mind, it's about decisions, small and large, that one makes at early stages of one's professional life and sort of how it can add up to really shape you um, as a person. So, I mean, it is about that. And it, in fact, starts with, with um, Lori, who's a Black artist who's been living in LA, and she suddenly inherits a, a brownstone from a, a, a great aunt she barely knew in Harlem. She moves to Harlem and is faced with this house full of a century's worth of accumulation and um, decides pretty early on to try to figure out what it's worth. So she um, she takes sort of, you know, a few items that she grabs up to an appraisal day and it's there she meets Parky DeGroot and Parky is a kind of uh, East Coast blue blood, slightly younger woman, um, white woman. And, you know, that that's the beginning of it for mm -hmm. them. There's this immediate attraction. And from then on, it's about negotiating their personal and professional relationships because they've got now sort of a shared interest in this state. So in that sense, it def definitely is um, about work and relationships. Um, though I think I think it's really, to me, it's a lot about um, inheritance. Mm -hmm. and, um, funnily, I was listening to you. I think you were interviewing Richard Russo yes. uh, not so long ago, and he was talking about how important inheritance was yeah. for his new book. It was very much a theme of his book. But mine is literally about inheritance. Yes, you know? it is. <laughs> inheriting an estate and um, it's figuratively about other kinds of inheritances you know it's about interracial relationships it's about role models it's about the erasure of certain kinds of black lives from the story of the, of the Harlem Renaissance etc so it's about, to me it's about a lot more than work but it's also about work I also I, I was just attracted this is Buzz uh, to the title Lush Life because my very favorite song not Hyperbole. Really? Hyperbole. Yeah. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Is lush, lush life. It's a jazz standard by mm -hmm. Billy Strayhorn, and and it's uh, the lyrics are as poetic as any lyrics. The music is really incredible, and the uh, it's about the uh, Billy Strayhorn's weariness of the nightlife after a failed romance that he mm -hmm. suffered. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful lyrics, and when I saw "Lush Life" is the name yeah. of the book, I had to wonder: is that related to the song? Absolutely, and yes, I mean you're. Strayhorn, um, an out black gay man um, himself, sort of the you know the the ultimate compliment to Duke Ellington's compositional skills. Strayhorn, the the lyricist, and I have said I did a playlist for the for the book for Large Hearted Boy recently, and I said you know I, it's the queerest jazz standard I think mm -hmm. that exists. And it's so melancholic and beautiful. You know, it's longing for a kind of you know, it's admitting loneliness, but longing for, you know, um, a, a, I, I think a, a new relationship um, that can't really be spoken of explicitly. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, to me, it's, I don't know if it's my favorite song, but I love that song. Oh. And Roxanne loves that song, too. So oh, that was nice. perfect. Mm. Um, um, my guest is Javanessa Lyons, and she is, we're talking about her book, Lush Lives. Can you read a selection for us? I can. Um 
So just to let you know, as I said, the, the book opens with, with Glory going to the auction house um, with a box full of mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. This is about there in that early scene. The girl at the desk raised her barely there eyebrows. As Glory set the box on the floor, a few stray beads of dried paint popped off her gray coveralls. She suddenly realized her hands, too, were stained with still moist oils. Come to think of it, she more or less reeked of minerals and solvents. Oh, I'm sorry, the receptionist said merrily. I didn't see you. How can we help you today? Before Glory could answer, a woman around her age, maybe a little younger, emerged from the mysterious hallway. She had to be close to six feet tall, and she wore a tailored navy skirt suit over a Kelly Green, nearly see-through chiffon blouse with a flouncy bow. She walked over to the receptionist and leaned the silver-handled walking stick she'd been using against the edge of the desk. While the woman was making a series of rapid entries on her clipboard, a thick lock of her strawberry blonde, or was it more like French ochre, bangs kept getting in her eyes. Each time it did, she pushed out her lower lip and blew it off her forehead, not seeming to care if her professionalism took a hit. I'm sending three and four to Nicholas, the woman said, evidently referring to the numbers assigned to the prospects she'd already seen. Is anyone else good for me? She asked, turning to the odd couple still sitting there. The redhead gave them a disarmingly friendly smile. Her tone and the mischievous look in her eyes were sexy and suggestive, and Glory found herself hoping she was their intended target. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, and you mentioned, um, as we were talking about the song Lush Life, Lives, Lush, Lush Life or Lush, Lush Lives Life. is the name of the song. Lush okay. Um, that um, you said it's one of Roxanne Gay's favorite songs, too. And um, I was going to bring that up, that this is the um, second book published by Roxanne Gay's publishing company. And Roxanne Gay, for those who don't know, is a best-selling writer, professor, editor, social commentator, writer of graphic novels, romance novel lover. She's, she's everything. Um, and so this is the second book that they've published. Tell us about the process of connecting with Roxanne Gay Books and, and how, why this was a good match for you. Um, well, you know, in a way, for all the reasons you said, Roxanne is, is so uh, multifaceted. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think I've admired her writing, but I've really admired her you know, public intellectualism, as it were, mm -hmm. and the way that she is unabashedly, you know, anti-racist, unabashedly feminist in her own way, et cetera. And so, you know, I, of course, for many of us, it's like a dream to work with Roxane Gay. You know, I, I went about it, or my book came to, to be published the usual way. I have an agent, and my agent approached Roxane Gay, and she said yes, and, you know, that was that. Was that. But, um, you know, I, I think sometimes for so-called celebrity imprints the the editor is is kind of off in the distance mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. other fans are who you're really working with but in this case you know we from the beginning talked closely about it and when i got revisions they were revisions from her which, oh, is, fantastic. which is really exciting it was really <laughs> that's wonderful well, uh this uh, this is just wonderful this is a wonderful um book and the name of the book is Lush Lives. It's by Jay Vanessa Lyon. We're going to hear about an event involving the book and Vanessa at, uh, coming up um, right after these messages. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Power to the people. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. 
Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, Little Neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny Little Necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, pvhabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Megan Zinn and J. Vanessa Lyon, the author of Lush Lives. And there's an event that's coming up at the Odyssey, correct, is that right? Correct, correct. Uh, Vanessa will be at Odyssey Books to talk about Lush Lives on Tuesday, September 12th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more on their website, Odyssey Books. So, Vanessa, tell me, what, was, what sparked the idea for this book? Well, I, it's, it's a funny question because I, I still haven't figured out how to answer it exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I started, like so many people, actually, I started writing fiction during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a full-time art historian, and I was teaching as we were, and then suddenly I was teaching online, and I was stuck in my Vermont house. Um, and I just started writing fiction in 2020. I wrote um, two books prior to this mm-hmm. and Lush Lives is the third one. And at that point I'd sort of decided to write romance, um, you know, queer BIPOC romance, queer black lesbian romance, because I was, you know, it was the pre-election days and I was just devastated. I was out of my mind mm-hmm. with sadness about the state of things. And I wanted to write some stories with happy endings yep. for queer women of color. And yep. I wasn't seeing them in the way that I wanted to see them. So, you know, it's the, the Toni Morrison quote is overquoted. It's, I feel like every single author says, you know, as Toni Morrison said, <laughs> if you don't see what you want, write it. But yeah. that is absolutely what happened. So it really came out of, you know, at, at that point I had written a couple of other novels. I had sold them. And then I thought, okay, so now I want to write about this kind of, um, something that I teach a lot right now, which is the the scary but interesting um, similarities between the 30s, the sort of, you know, 30s, early 40s, and now politically and in other ways. Um, 
So, you know, this has become frighteningly apparent in the past year or so, how, how similar, yes. um, how much violence there is against mm -hmm. black people, people of color, et cetera, lesbians, homosexuals, et cetera. But so I wanted to kind of, I didn't want to write a historical novel, but I did want to think about the kind of trans historical connections between the Harlem Renaissance and right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you, I, I, I saw um, a piece, um, you talked about, and I've just, I blank, can't believe I'm blanking on the name of the photographer, but uh, as an art historian, you were really drawn to the photograph by the great Harlem photographer who gets, yeah. whose name has just escaped me. James Vanderzee. Yeah, James Vanderzee. And you were um, inspired a bit by one of his photographs for the, for the book. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, I wrote a little piece in LitHub about the fact that after, you know, when I got an advance for one of the earlier books, I, I guess, cause I'm an art historian, you know, I, I didn't buy jewelry or even um, do anything more practical than that. I just decided, Oh, I'm going to buy a photograph. I Fantastic. really, really had wanted to own a Vanderzee photograph and um, they come up at auction every now and then. And so um, there's an interior of a Harlan Brownstone mm -hmm. um, that I have. And, and that became kind of the, the talisman or the the lodestone for this book. I just, I would get up and I would look at that photograph as I was trying to conjure up the mm -hmm. idea of, of occupying, living in an, a Harlem brownstone. And I was stuck in COVID times, of course, so I couldn't get to Harlem in that moment. I had been and I before and I went after, but I had that photograph while I was writing. I love that. Um, I, I want to ask you a twist on a cliched, a cliched interview question. Um, music is important in lush lives, um, as is visual art, very much so. And obviously both are very important in your lives. Um, what musicians and visual artists would you, from present and past, would you like to bring together at a dinner, at a dream dinner party? Ooh. Ooh that, that is a hard one. Um, you don't have to name them all. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's, it's really hard because um in a way i mean it's I, I, music is really important to me and yet you know that's it's not my bread and it's not the bread mm -hmm. and butter of yeah. what i do but of course but i i'm a big opera fan i mean mm. i don't boy really that's such a hard one but i i think um and again you know artists are not no offense to artists but artists are not necessarily who for my dream dinner party ah. i would absolutely i would always go to i might go to writers you mm -hmm. know I, of course i i i would have had the chance um almost to to know um audrey lord and, mm. and bell hooks mm -hmm. and of course either either or both of them yeah. or on saldua um these are people that i would would have you know died to sit down and, and talk with at a dinner party. Mm -hmm. Those are those are the people I think of. But you know, I, my my specialty as an art historian is is Baroque art. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I I love Caravaggio mm -hmm. and I love Velasquez, but I don't know whether I would invite them to dinner. Um, <laughs> yeah, with with bell hooks and Audre Lorde. <laughs> <laughs> out of painting and left it maybe yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah, I'm you yeah. made that a little bit because it, it becomes so complicated mm -hmm. for me for you know bernice abbott louise nevelson i mean mm -hmm. there are so many artists um uh alma thomas uh so many contemporary artists right now and i have a lecture series it's not mine but i directed at bennington and i i get to invite contemporary artists to come and talk and so most of the artists who are mentioned in the book are people who have you know, come and given um, artist talks at Bennington and who I wanted, right. you know, just to, to turn this a little mm -hmm. bit, I wanted to put names in there because if you notice, like almost every name who's cited in Lush Lives is a, is a woman of color, mm -hmm. often a queer woman. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I did, I wanted to put names out there who some people know, certainly people know a lot of these names, but I want people to say, oh, uh, Shabbos Self, who's that? I'm going to look that person up, you know, so... I would have any of those people to dinner, and I have had a couple of them to oh, dinner. Fantastic, fantastic. And my guest is Jay Vanessa Lyon, and um, her novel is Lush Lives. Um, do you have a question? Buzz. Oh, okay. Um, one thing, I, you know, I, I read, as I've said on, on this show, a lot of romance novels and a lot of literary fiction, and Lush Lives really seems like a perfect combination of both. Um, it's, it's very literary. It's also a romance novel. Um, did you set out to write one or the other or both, or was that genre not a consideration and you were just writing what you wanted to put out there in the world? I am so grateful for that question and that framing because it, it's absolutely what I, you know, what I ended up wanting to do. I will say I didn't set out thinking about it as much that way, but I think romance is, you know, this, if you Mm -hmm. like romance, you know, it, 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 it needs to be defended in certain ways. Yeah. Um, it continues to be under, under respected um, as a genre in terms of its potential to be literarily um, good, you know, yeah. to have to be well-crafted, et cetera. And so I wanted to push the envelope a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, one thing I've done with all these books is try to write a kind of romance that is recognizable to me anyway, as the real world, a romance about women of color that, you know, where racism does exist, where white supremacy yeah. is there, where homophobia is part of, you know, these are obstacles that they overcome to get the happy ending. And so even pushing that, I think I found, you know, some people think it's not a romance if it's, if it has anything that's not, um, purely sparkly unicorns, you know, Um, but I also, you know, yes, you know, the craft of the book is important to Mm -hmm. me and and having a gesture to history and literature was important to me. And if, if it achieves that, I'm really happy, but I just, I really appreciate, you know, just your sense that it's, it's trying at least to, to, categories. I think it's succeeding. I think it's succeeding. Um, My guest is Jay Vanessa Lyon, and her book is Lush Lives, and she will be reading um, and talking about her book on Tuesday, September 12th at 7 p.m., and you can find more info on the website odysseybks.com. And if we have another minute, I just want to ask, um, I love the characters' names. It's the two primary characters are Glory Hopkins and Parky DeGroote. Um, What inspired those names? They're they're fantastic. (laughs) Well, Glory, I mean, I did Glory, Glorious. Um, I, I wanted her to have a name that was befitting of someone who's sort of shy and self-effacing, but is actually amazing. Um, and uh, there are Har- Har- Pauline Hopkins. There, there, you know, there are um, Hopkinses who mm-hmm. of note who you know made me choose that name. But Glor- uh, Parky, I actually I have a relative named Parkerson, and so ah, okay. I felt okay using that, um, but I love the nickname Parky. And DeGroote is a little bit of a joke because um, I work on Netherlandish art mostly, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in Dutch, DeGroote is the great. So yes. she's Parky, Parky the Great. That's and, fantastic. Um, That's fantastic. Thanks for asking. Well, <laughs> thank you. And again, uh, guest is Jamin Lyon, and um, her book is Lush Lives. So go out there and read it. Go out there and read it. She will be at the Odyssey on what date? On um, September 12th at 7 o'clock. And we can meet her live and in color. It sounds like an incredible book. And thank you for joining us today, Vanessa. And thank you so much for the title because I wasn't kidding. Lush Life. If you don't have it, if you have a chance, listen to it. Take a look at the lyrics. It's really a beautiful song. And sounds inspirational for Jay Vanessa Lyon. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Vanessa, walk the walk. <laughs>
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash newengland. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. WHMP Northampton and WRSI 